Hi, and welcome to Declarations, the human rights podcast sponsored by the Center for Governance and Human Rights here at the University of Cambridge. My name is Scott Novak, and I'll be your host on today's show. For this episode, I sat down with Russian activist Maria Alyokhina, also known as Masha, at Cambridge's Gender and the Political Academy conference to discuss how to protest against authoritarianism. Masha is one of the members of Pussy Riot, a feminist punk rock protest group based in Moscow. She spent nearly two years in prison for protesting against the Russian government. Since her release in December 2013, she has co-founded an independent media outlet called Media Zona and continues to find creative ways to critique authoritarianism around the world. After the interview with Masha, we will be joined by our regular declarations panelist Max Curtis, along with Joanna Kozlovska, a former reporter at the Moscow Times. And now, over to Masha. And a quick note to our listeners, there is some explicit language in this interview. So I'd like to uh, start off by asking you about the current human rights abuses happening in Chechnya. Um, I'm sure you've heard there's been international reports um, that the government in Chechnya has been rounding up and torturing gay men, and so far at least three have been killed. Uh, What are your thoughts on this situation, and do they relate to other kinds of human rights abuses going on right now in Russia? Well, Chechnya region uh, is, I think, one of the main problems, like according to human rights Mm-hmm. in Russia and uh, the uh, head of this uh, region uh, Ramzan Kadyrov he's uh, of course uh, coordinating uh, his politics with Vladimir Putin mm-hmm. and uh, he made uh, this region the place of torturing people for example uh, we have uh, one of the best uh, human rights organizations uh, in Russia called Committee Against Torture. And uh, their office in Chechnya was burned about a half a year ago. And after that, nobody was... So are they no longer in Chechnya now after that incident? They have, um, let's say, a mobile group which is trying to protect um, human rights, but there is no office. And uh, after that, Chechen officials said that it's them who burned, it's like Committee Against Torture mm-hmm. were the people who burned their own office. And uh, it's a practice of every day. They are kidnapping people, they're torturing people, they're killing people. And everybody knows that uh, the murder of Boris Yemsov, one of the Russian oppositional leaders who was shot in February uh, 2015 in the center of Moscow near the Kremlin walls, is the responsibility of uh, Ramzan Kadyrov. Mm-hmm. And, um, well, I think uh, like international community should keep the eye on this mm-hmm. place. So it's happening all across, things like this are happening all across Russia, but Chechnya is one of the worst places. Where uh, Chechnya is, uh, for my opinion, mm-hmm. is an epicenter mm-hmm. of, of this. Yes, yeah, yeah, and a lot of reports, I think, international reports, like you mentioned, international groups would also make that classification. Um, now I'd like to talk about, because um, people, of course, are not just getting put in jail for 
identifying as gay or lesbian, they're also getting put in jail for just making any remarks about the government, as you are very, very familiar with. Um, as a member of Pussy Riot, you participated in multiple protests against the Russian government. So how have you used feminism to resist authoritarianism? Mm, I think it's not uh, about the past, it's about uh, nowadays as well, because... Um, I'm living in Russia and uh, still doing what I'm doing in Russia. Um, activism. Well, let's say the patriarchal issue in Russia now, like the main sense is that we totally don't have political role models, women. Mm-hmm. And all the activism which is like provided by, we- by women is feminism already. Because somehow we have a situation where all the like government officials saying that the woman's place is not like an active place. Mm-hmm. And those people who are not agree, myself for example, they all like becoming a feminist, um, how to say it, automatically. For example, um, it's it's a lot of things, but um, we have uh, totally another uh, context uh, of of society. Mm-hmm. Um, in the whole Russia, even in Moscow, we even don't have gender studies in universities mm. at all. Wow. No university with gender studies. Can you imagine this? Yeah. Uh, it's just uh, one small example, uh, but uh, these examples are everywhere. Several months ago, we had uh, they decriminalized uh, uh, domestic violence. Yes, mm-hmm. um, you probably heard about that, and uh, this is like really terrible thing uh, because I've been in penal colony for two years, and I've seen a lot of women who who like who who had sentences for. Murders, for example, mm-hmm. but they murdered uh, their husband or partners because they had domestic violence for like every day. So out of self defense. Yes. Yeah. And mm-hmm. there is there are no social mechanisms for protecting these women at all in mm-hmm. Russia. For example, they have with their partner or husband this violence for every day. What woman can can do in this situation? She can call to the police. Mm-hmm. Police will take him for a night. Um, he will, like, go, go out from from the police station, come back home, and beat her even stronger. And this is like everyday practice mm-hmm. in the whole regions. Is it better in terms of these very heteronormative gender identities and sexual orientations? Um, is it because I know at least back in the U.S. some regions are better than others where, you know, the cities will often be a, a bit more liberal or a lot more liberal than out in the countryside. Do you find Moscow, um, people in Moscow are treated better or a little bit better than, for example, people living in Chechnya? Or is it pretty much just across the board really bad wherever you go? I think um, we have this difference. This difference exists. Uh, but we don't have political will to improve it at all. Mm-hmm. 
and all the situation depends on the like local local the heads, local uh, government officials. Yes. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And if we are talking about Chechnya, um, Ramzan Kadyrov is like he's a fucking terrorist. Mm-hmm. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> and everybody knows it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, well. Of course, it's not Moscow, mm-hmm. but uh, in Moscow, Moscow is not a paradise as well, mm-hmm. uh, because if you if you will try to, for example, even try mm-hmm. to make a gay pride in Moscow, you'll see that uh, let's say this like quasi Nazi activists mm-hmm. will will come and uh, so a lot of people must be afraid to speak but, out. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, we had uh, uh, maybe uh, maybe you've heard about Milonov. Uh, Milonov, he's mm-hmm. um, one of the guys uh, from uh, Saint Petersburg um, State Parliament. Okay, uh, he's like half crazy guy who <laughs> 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 he has a huge flag of uh, Denair. You know Denair? What is uh, that? Uh, Donetsk Independent Republic. Oh, okay, wow. okay. Uh, in his in his office in Saint Petersburg, Duma. Anyway, so he came uh, to the square. I think that was yesterday, uh, like for the first May, May mm-hmm. demonstration, and had a big speech on like let's let's uh, beat all the gay people, let's destroy them all. This is like uh, enemies of the states mm-hmm. and blah blah blah. You 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 see it like official position, mm-hmm. and uh, this is a very obvious thing in Russia. Mm-hmm. But somebody just kicked him to his face, <laughs> and a lot of journalists were recorded that. And uh, I think that was quite um, quite better than before. Usually, these people just uh, just come and. Uh, They speak out and they get away with it. Mm-hmm. No one on the streets. Exactly. So you spent, speaking of protests, you spent nearly two years in prison mm-hmm. for singing a song criticizing President Vladimir Putin in Moscow's main cathedral. Mm-hmm. I want to ask, before this, did you fear for your personal safety while protesting? And did you ever imagine that you might end up in prison? We did not uh, thought about criminal case, but if you are doing activism in Russia, you can expect everything. Mm-hmm. It is like unpredictable territory. Mm-hmm. And what motivated you to take on that personal risk? Well, I think uh, if you're doing political art, uh, you you can say goodbye about to safety because it's not about safety. Art is not about safety. Mm-hmm. Um, we we are a, we are a small group, uh, but I think it's important uh, to even for history, to know that you did everything what you what you can mm-hmm. uh, to give an answer, to to say that you are not agree with them as loud as you can. And uh, our uh, action, our pan prayer, uh, was just a one thing in this idea. How were you treated? While you were imprisoned, treated? Yes. Um, did you suffer any violence while you were locked up? Did the guards treat you poorly? What What was that like? Well, <laughs> um, I think uh, our let's say human rights activity um, mm-hmm. 
yes, started uh, when started inside prison uh, because Russian prison system is is a very like pure mirror of relationships between government and citizens. Mm-hmm. They are not um, seeing you as a person, but as a let's say, detail of the mechanism which should work. And uh, when you see the system from the inside, the first, like, first thing what you want to do just to somehow controverse it. For example, um, when I was transferred to penal colony, you know, we have, Mm -hmm. we have, like, jails Mm -hmm. where you are kind of existing, living during the investigation and the court investigation. And after the sentence, you are transferred to the penal colony. Mm-hmm. Penal colony mm-hmm. is uh, like Soviet Union. It's a totally another system that you have in the West. Penal colony with like barracks okay. uh, where, for example, 100 women living together like sleeping in in one huge room okay. 100 people and uh, there are like several barracks um, around the colony so it's like a very strange village okay okay um, very very strange and um, what work should uh, should do this women like you you should work by, mm-hmm. by law you should work okay and the work is uh, sewing police uniform for 12 or like 14 hours per day. And so you, you did no, some I didn't. Work. Oh, okay. okay. Uh, I mean, I, and well, you, you cannot refuse, of course, mm-hmm. because if you will refuse, you will go to the solitary confinement. And I, I spent this in solitary confinement about like five months. Oh, wow. Um, so, and for, for this work, you, they pay uh, women about like $3 per month. Which is fucking nothing. So mm-hmm. this is slavery. Mm-hmm. And uh, when you first time see the system where uh, people living in these conditions, eating like rotten food, there are no medicine at all, um, and working on sewing police uniform and uniform for Russian army, for 14 fucking hours per day, uh, you want to do something with that. And um, I don't think that prisoners are only the people who don't like the system. Prison guards uh, don't like this system as well. It they, doesn't sound like a, pres- a pleasant work environment for anyone yeah. who's involved. Yeah. We, we just, we, we have uh, really terrible social situation in Russia and people who are going to work in penal colonies uh, usually just don't have don't have choice because they don't have an option for other work of course they they don't like it they mm-hmm. don't like the the conditions where uh, they they also paid for example like about two two hundred three hundred dollars per month for for the work which is totally awful i don't know the english word um, like 
when the workers are doing, um, like collaborating together. How you uh, unions? unions? Like worker unions? Yes, mm-hmm. we don't have it. It will just don't work. Yeah. I mean, okay. And uh, prison guards uh, don't have um, the right to do the. Ah, so the they union. don't have the right to organize uh-huh. and represent themselves. Yes. Um. So after your release from prison, you founded. Or you helped found MediaZona, an mm-hmm. independent online news outlet. Uh, so what challenges have you faced in founding and maintaining this media outlet in an era of government, government oppression? Uh, so we started our human rights work uh, inside the penal colony, as I said. So after I've seen all these things, I, uh, I went to the court against prison guards and I won oh. somehow. Yes, it took, took two months, but we won. And uh, when when I felt uh, that I can do it, even in Russian court, I I was really like totally mm-hmm. happy um, in my single cell. And um, I mean, we with uh, all the activists who who helped us uh, to do this, mm-hmm. we start to think how we can continue, what we can do. And uh, during 2013, uh, we decided that all these things which are happening in Russian prisons are really similar to what is going on in Russia uh, at all. Mm. And um, we decided, uh, firstly, to uh, protect the uh, rights of, this, of the prisoners who who's still behind bars, and uh, we uh, decide to open the media outlet, which will provide the, all the information about, uh, like, connected with, like, freedom questions in mm-hmm. Russia. Mm-hmm. And mostly, uh, Media Zona became, now it's became really famous. It's, uh, like, on the top ten of the, in the rating of uh, quotation in Russian internet. So actually, so the, okay. the main thing yeah. about the uh, media zone, how it became famous, uh, it became famous because we started to do online from the political courts. Oh, okay, okay. Um, so all the political courts and number of political courts is growing mm-hmm. uh, from day to day because, like, no oppositioner in Russia who do not have criminal case against him or her. Uh, so uh, our journalists start to make very like. Mm, step-by-step reports from that. So my final question for you is, do you have any advice for people who want to protest against authoritarian figures in their own countries, um, whether that be Putin or perhaps Donald Trump? Or Brexit situation. I think uh, about pussy right, I think it's all uh, very simple. Everybody can be a pussy right. And, uh, well, just do what do you feel? And uh, I really think that it will work. And now to discuss some of the subjects we talked about further, we are joined by Declarations panelists Max Curtis and former Moscow Times reporter Joanna Kozlovska. So I'd like to start off by asking you both what your thoughts on the effectiveness of Pussy Riot's protest tactics against the Russian government have been in the past. I was reading online and a state-run pollster found that 38% of Russians disapproved of the amnesty that President Vladimir Putin granted 
to Masha and Nadezhda Tolokonikova um, that cut their prison sentences short. And I was also reading that some Russians apparently, again, this was based on the state-run pollster, but that some Russians think that the protest was aimed at the Russian Orthodox Church itself rather than criticizing Vladimir Putin because it took place within a church. Um, Joanna, do you have any comments on that? Well, these figures sound pretty plausible to me. And uh, I would just like to point out that Pussy Riot would probably have found uh, more support and sympathy among the more educated and more urban parts of the Russian population, because I guess, well, uh, support for Vladimir Putin uh, and his government has been historically quite high uh, in the Russian provinces, also feelings of, of nationalism. And, uh, and I guess um, religious feelings have been getting stronger and stronger in recent years. Um, actually, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering whether there might not be a false dichotomy between and the state, uh, criticizing the state and criticizing the Orthodox Church. As uh, well, many analysts have pointed out, that in recent years, uh, Putin's regime has been increasingly trying to co-opt the Orthodox Church. There has been increased cooperation between the state and the church in pushing through uh, what Putin's government uh, often refers to as traditional values uh, that Russia should supposedly embody as it stands up to the quote-unquote morally corrupt West, Western democracies. Uh, so I would say that the church and the state could be uh, the two sides of the same coin. Indeed. And in Masha's talk, she gave a talk um, to a group of people at the conference after our interview later in the day. And she had made that point as well, that there's so much corruption between the Russian church and the state that that was part of their that was part of the reason why they chose this church as the form of protest. Uh, yes, and just following on from that, um, I think it's worth pointing out that it's not just the Russian Orthodox Church, that the Russian Orthodox Church has been the most uh, prominent uh, and probably most powerful religious institution too, as have been used by the government or, or, or perhaps rather cooperated in, with the government in this way. But the, the government is also uh, trying to mo mobilize support uh, among other religious bodies, whether, whether Muslim or, or Jewish uh, religious bodies, institutional communities within Russia. Uh, and the case of Chechnya is actually a really good example uh, with uh, Novaya Gazeta reporters. So, so the reporters who actually broke the story of, uh, of the detention camps and, you know, the detention and, and, and arbitrary detention and torture of gay men in Chechnya, they uh, have actually been uh, faced uh, with... Uh, threats, well, from Muslim clerics in Chechnya, from, uh, I guess, the institutional community, uh, who called for jihad against the, the, the three reporters who broke the story in the sermon listened to by over um, over 1,500 people in Grozny, the capital of Chechnya. So it's not, wow. just, the, so it's not just the Orthodox Church. So, yeah. I would say it's organized religion more broadly in Russia. Part of what makes Pussy Riot so interesting then as a sort of art movement, I think, I think that's what makes Pussy Riot so powerful is the fact that they are an art movement. I think as uh, Masha mentioned in her interview, uh, mainstream political organization in Russia in opposition to Vladimir Putin has been summarily, you know, crushed in a lot of ways. It's been very difficult to have any sort of real political opposition, despite a lot of on the ground support. But what Pussy Riot is able to do is, as an art movement, not just fight back, say, in election polls or in basic grassroots campaigning, what they're able to do is fight back against the very notion of normality in Russia. And I think that's a very important thing, the fact that 
say, Putin or the Orthodox Church, what they have a sense of is what it means to be a normal person, what it means to be a normal everyday Russian. And that's something that is fundamentally at odds with the actual lived experiences of, you know, millions of people there. And that's something that they're able to specifically fight back against in a very broad-based sense because they're able to do these big, symbolic, powerful movements and protests. I think this is a really interesting point. I think it's really important to draw the line between uh, political protests, I mean, overtly political organization, this tradition of protest uh, arts in Russia. I think it's really, really useful to uh, point uh, to the, the existence of a separate strand of, of, of the Russian protest tradition, this tradition of political arts, uh, performance arts, uh, making statements about well, the state of society in Russia. And I would just like to say that Pussy Riot uh, seems to be very much within this long-standing Russian tradition of political arts, of protest arts. There have been other cases um, of, uh, I guess you could say, shock artists making political statements using fairly graphic, fairly shocking stunts to uh, draw people's attention to um, the ills of Russian society. Among them is Piotr Pavlinsky, uh, perhaps most famous for setting fire to the front door of the FSB headquarters, so the headquarters of, of Russia's security service and successor to the KGB. When I was interviewing Masha, one of the things that struck me that she said was, if you're doing political art, you can say goodbye to safety. Art is not about safety. And when I had asked her, that was in response to a question, how did you feel when doing these protests? Um, did you ever feel like you were risking your life? Did you know the risks that you were taking on? And I was coming at that from the perspective of political activism, and I'd never used the words art, and the, it's a type of art um, that you don't, at least in the United States where I'm from, I don't see that as much. But then again, I guess because the stakes aren't as high, you can make art that critiques politicians, usually without fearing for your life or fearing imprisonment, um, which makes this tactic um, much more significant and has a different role than it does in maybe like the US. Now, Max, I wanted to ask you on this topic, can you tell us a bit more about the role of women leading protests in Russian history? Yeah, well, I think the Pussy Riot example brings up two interesting features of protests in history, in Russian history and broader in Western history. So the first one is, of course, artistic protests. And I think what's interesting is it's a relatively recent idea that art and politics are the separate things that sometimes intersect. After all, um, if you think of, say, the Surrealists in especially France in the 1920s and 1930s, they profoundly believed that their art was a political thing. They believed that by fighting against the sort of reality that was imposed on them structurally, they were fundamentally opposing the state, the capitalist system that we're in, et cetera, et cetera. These were, in many ways, political radicals. But of course, nowadays, you mostly think of them as, say, at, at very abstract forms of art. Another brilliant example of this, uh, if we want to go back to Russia, uh, would be the, the arts of the Russian Revolution in the 20s. Uh, except, uh, unlike the Surrealists, uh, these artists were actually working in, in tandem with uh, uh, with the, the, the revolutionary forces who had taken power in, in, in the new Soviet state. Uh, and the, the objective of, uh, of this art, you know, whether it be cinema, literature, visual arts, uh, would, would have been very explicit and it would have been uh, molding a completely new type of citizen, the, the new Soviet citizen, the new Soviet man. And, as, woman. As the, and woman, as the saying went. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's absolutely true. And I mean, we're 100 years out from the 1917 revolution. And I think one absolutely fascinating thing is the way that women have been largely erased from this story. We think of 
Trotsky and Lenin and Stalin. But in many ways, the real protest movement began with women. After all, the February Revolution, which ousted the Tsar essentially, began in Petrograd or St. Petersburg on International Women's Day, which was a relatively new socialist holiday that nowadays we celebrate all the time. But it was incredibly important for women who were working, who were part of that proletariat, women who were peasants, and they, not just because of their economic needs, but because of their social needs as women, became really powerful protesters. I think um, I'm remembering uh, in China Mabel's recent book, October, which is about uh, the 1917 revolutions, uh, he wrote that, if I'm recalling correctly, that a lot of these protests began with women going out onto the streets, protesting, and even, say, tossing stones at the men's factories to get the men to come out with them and protest. Wow. And nowadays, it's interesting that, in many ways, these women's contributions have been erased. Uh, in the New York Times recently, there was a professor, Yuri Sleskin, I think I'm mispronouncing that horribly, who wrote that this belief that many of the revolutionary leaders in 1917 were these men who really just lusted after lots of female revolutionaries and that the male was the norm, the men were the actors, the women were the passive recipients of this revolution who eventually got all sorts of great benefits um, at the start of the Soviet Union. But that completely erases a lot of the ways that women were active in this debate, who actively wanted um, bread, who actively wanted votes. And nowadays, Pussy Riot is, in many ways, the they are the descendants of those revolutionaries and those movements in Russia, artistic, political. I don't see a distinction between the two. That's interesting. And when you go back to the question that we began this conversation with, how effective are their tactics? In the presentation that she later gave at Cambridge, her keynote address about her time in prisons, she showed pictures of, they, you know, Pussy Riot wears the, the masks over their face. Or they're... I don't know what exactly they are, but they're... I think you say balaclava, like knitted balaclavas. Uh, the knit, yeah, okay, the knitted balaclavas um, over their heads. And then they showed when they were uh, put in prison, um, just all these people in Moscow out on the streets wearing that as well in solidarity with them. And then that went on to get, obviously, international attention from the news outlets in many ways by the Russian government's reaction that's what made it really successful, at least on an international level, of putting international pressure on the government and gaining that attention, because that's the point of the protest. Like, in my view, the point of the protest is not just the protest itself, but then in the reaction you can produce from the actors you're trying to influence. Yes, absolutely. I think this is a great point. Uh, and another thing that's quite interesting is um, how this symbolism, oh, you know, the, the, the pussy riots or, or, or these kind uh, of knitted hats and uh, and caps that people are wearing, how this seemed to cut on and, and you know, be adopted in other contexts. Uh, we'll think about the anti-Trump marches after after President Trump's inauguration, the pussy hats people were wearing in all over the United States, really. But I think it definitely points to the subversive potential of, of you know, uh, the frank discussion of female sexuality and feminist movements, uh, be it in the Russian or an American context. Certainly. Joanna, you attended a recent talk here in Cambridge by Alexander Kramarenko, the Russian ambassador to the UK. Did he comment upon the situation in Chechnya at all? Yes, well, he was uh, asked a lot of questions about the situation in Chechnya. And the answers he gave, well, unsurprisingly, mirrored the Russian government's official line. Well, officially, uh, the Kremlin has backed uh, the Chechen uh, president, um, the Chechen strongman Ramzan Kadyrov, uh, who had denied uh, 
any allegations of 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 uh, unlawful imprisonment uh, and torture of Chechen citizens. Uh, and the ambassador took the same line, uh, essentially saying no judgment can be passed uh, and, and no conclusions can be drawn before there is an official investigation. But at the same time, uh, he didn't seem to provide a satisfactory answer to the question when such a probe would be launched and what the state itself would do to, to further it. Well, the Kremlin's official line has been until there are no official complaints from identified uh, claimants who are willing to come forward, um, identify themselves and uh, take the Chechen state to court, uh, there can be, well, no official procedure can be launched. And in the current climate of fear in Chechnya, it's quite unlikely that any gay or bisexual men who have been targeted will be able to come forward and make such allegations. Uh, this has been uh, underlined by multiple Russian LGBT uh, advocacy organizations. Indeed, I think the, and before the Kremlin came up with its official line on that, um, the Chechen leader, he he had said when asked about this, oh, the, but there are no gay or bisexual men in Chechnya, so we are not torturing them because they don't exist, which is obviously not true. Well, this was his press secretary, but I am sure that Mr. Kudurov's personal views are, are not much different. Uh, well, the press secretary made some other fairly shocking statements, uh, pointing to the prevalence of the so-called honor killings uh, in Chechnya, um, saying essentially that, well, even if there were gay people, gay men in Chechnya, the families would surely... Uh, quote, send them to a place from which there is no return. Uh, and indeed, uh, well, recently, uh, there has been a case uh, of a transgender woman uh, living in the United States and coming forward uh, as, uh, as, as a Chechen refugee, as a transgender Chechen refugee, who was uh, smuggled out of Chechnya by, by human rights uh, groups and has since um, moved to the United States, uh, who said that she had been targeted by Chechen uh, men in Moscow after having fled the Republic and also that her family uh, had been threatened and, uh, and were visited by unidentified men uh, calling on them to kill their child uh, before, before they do it themselves. Wow. So there are obviously LGBT refugees from Chechnya who have been applying for asylum. Um, the Russia LGBT Network spokesperson um, Svetlana Zakharova said that they're having difficulty securing visas that would allow these LGBT refugees to flee the country and find um, a haven from their abuse. Um, and she didn't wish to name any of the countries making it hard for these individuals to get out of Chechnya, but she did say that they were informed that the U.S. is not going to issue visas for people from Chechnya. In light of that information, uh, I was thinking of one of the needs that Masha spoke about in the interview was the need for other countries to put international pressure on Russia regarding human rights abuses like the ones that are happening in Chechnya right now. With Donald Trump as president of the United States, do you both think that this will make such international pressure harder to summon? Absolutely. I can't see how it wouldn't. I mean, um, I was just thinking of how back in April, Trump uh, declared April National Sexual Assault Awareness Month in America. And he was immediately, you know, basically made fun of because this is a person who's been accused of sexual assault of 15 women. This is a president who doesn't particularly care about things like LGBT rights, except when he can summon up Islamophobia, like in the Orlando shooting case. Uh, ultimately, this is a president who doesn't particularly care about marginalized people, people who don't fit in the normal assumption for him of 
normal power politics. I, yeah, I, I can't see how it wouldn't be essentially impossible for the United States to summon up international pressure when it comes to this. Uh, yes, I agree with Max. Uh, and also in very practical terms, um, going back to the Chechen case, it has since been revealed in a White House press conference that President Trump hadn't brought up the topic of Chechen detention camps during a meeting with the Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov. And I have to say that Europe's record on this doesn't seem to have been much better, with Lithuania currently being uh, the only country that has issued this visas to uh, two men claiming to be Chechen refugees fleeing persecution. So I think, as we rightly decry human rights abuses in Russia, uh, we should not forget about putting pressure on our own government. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Declarations. If you'd like to share your thoughts on this episode, you can tweet us at DeclarationsPod on Twitter and like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash declarationspodcast. We would also love if you took a few seconds to rate us on iTunes. Please subscribe and thank you for tuning in to Declarations. Declarations.